Today's reading comes from 1 Peter 4, 12 to 19. Suffering for being a Christian. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. For the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good work. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Um, Alan Hirsch, an Australian missiologist, has written a number of excellent books on mission, one of which is called The Forgotten Ways. Uh, it's a great title because I think it does capture the sense that in terms of what it means to participate in God's mission, uh, it's something we're going to have to kind of relearn because we've largely forgotten what that means. We're having to relearn a lot of stuff. We've been very used to being in what's called Christendom, where in a sense the culture delivered people to us and we didn't have to think too much about uh, what all that meant. Many of us are older here. We can remember an era when this church was... I mean, I can't remember that era, but when this church was full of people who came to Sunday school, that era came and went, uh, and we've been in a different situation for a fair while. We've forgotten what it's like to be a church engaged in a mission because these days we're more a church at the margins and the culture is no longer delivering people to us. Now, that can be variable, of course. I had the privilege in 2019 of going to the EFAC uh, USA conference, which was in Birmingham, Alabama, in the Deep South, and 70% of people still go to church in Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, you know, it's kind of hard to imagine that, isn't it? But that's, that's a, a very different situation to uh, this morning where Glen Ferry Road will be groaning with people in cafes but not groaning with people sitting in churches. Now, as part of the Forgotten Ways is the challenge of discipleship. Uh, Bishop Graham Cray was the person who headed up Fresh Expressions in the Church of England for a decade uh, and he argues that if we are going to actually reach people for Christ in the north or the west, whichever way you want to describe it, I mean, these days they distinguish between the north, which includes Australia somewhat strangely, uh, and the south, uh, which is where most unreached people groups are. Sometimes we often talk about it as those of us who live in Western culture, the west. Uh, then discipleship and uh, practising discipleship has to become our number one priority. At the end of Matthew's Gospel, Jesus has the so-called Great Commission to go and make disciples of all nations. And that involves baptising people, but as well as that, it involves teaching people all that he has commanded us to do. This isn't kind of some add-on postscript to the script to the Gospel. In actual fact, it's a heart of what we're meant to be a part of as God's people today. Disciples need to be made then they need to be taught everything that Jesus has commanded us in the rest of the Gospels and for us, the epistles. And I would suggest this should be the biggest priority for all churches 
uh, in our context today because we have to be in the business of making, maturing and mobilising disciples of Christ, people becoming believers, people going on into maturity as believers and people being mobilised to live out their faith in all of their lives as well as to use their gifts in the context of God's people. So that's part of the big challenge that I think we all face. Now, that's a challenge for all churches because at present most churches are over-obligated and over-extended. In the past decade, there's been a myriad of external obligations that have come upon all not-for-profit organisations, including churches, uh, and it is frankly kind of overwhelming. The diocese very hopefully last year put out a compliance calendar, uh, which kind of said it all, in my opinion. The diocese is now there to make sure that everything's in order uh, and we all have to be compliant. Now, I know many of these obligations are important and we have to attend to them, but it has created a situation where we actually are over-obligated and over-extended, just dealing with all of the basic stuff, hence, you know, the chairs and the windows this morning. Now, Kirsty, don't be anxious. I know that compliance is important uh, and it's very good that you're hurts <laughs> and columns uh, and that you are forcing and helping us to be compliant in every respect. But it is a tension about trying to actually make the priority the priority when you've got all of these things that are upon us. Now, in spite of all that, if discipleship is to be our number one priority, it also, I think, is our biggest challenge. And it could be suggested that we've largely forgotten how to make disciples. Most churches are full of people who have been Christians for a very long time. And I don't say that to be critical. That is just the reality. Uh, And many churches haven't got many new disciples uh, to actually leaven the lump of those of us who have been, been believers for a long time. In the era we're now in, we'll have to work together to relearn how to make disciples afresh, to make connections. And one of your strengths as a church is the incredible connections you already have uh, in all sorts of ways, through the kids' ministry, through uh, the sports ministry, through the potential of what could emerge out of the cafe and one could go on and on. I mean, you are in a situation where you have a lot of options and a lot of connections, and that's an incredibly big positive for you as a church. Uh, How do we go about sharing our faith? How do we allow times for question and debate and doubt? Because we are in a context in an era when there's a lot of doubt and contention about faith. Uh, It's no longer seen as being a good thing necessarily, but it's often seen as being a negative to be a person of faith. And churches are often perceived as being places where you'll be harmed, not helped. Uh, And that's kind of what we're contending with, isn't it? And there are a lot of big issues floating around in our culture, which we're in the midst of. Uh, So this is a lifelong journey of being a disciple, and as Eugene Peterson helpfully once put it, it's the long obedience in the same direction. It doesn't end until the kingdom comes. So every church has to be involved in every phase of what it is to be making disciples, helping people to go on into maturity, even if you've been a Christian for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 or 60 years, or even more perhaps, and as well as that, helping people to work out what it means to live out our faith in all of our lives in all of its dimensions. Now, as we've reflected in this series, at present, uh, you could suggest that we are a group of people who seem to have chosen the losing team. And that's part of what Peter is thinking about in this particular chapter, uh, when he's thinking about suffering. Personal faith is increasingly on the margins, and being a person of faith is often seen as being a minority lifestyle choice. We're seemingly often on the back foot and defending the faith today. In the past 50 years, there have probably been four big trends in the area of mission and evangelism. In the 1950s and 60s, we had the era 
of stadium evangelism with the, the Crusades. It's still too, too, true to say that the biggest attendance at the MCC, at the Melbourne Cricket Ground, rather, was uh, Billy Graham's appearance there in 1959 on the final Sunday, uh, and that's the biggest crowd that's ever gathered in that space at one time. Uh, that was in a significant era, and there are many people who owe their faith to the Graham and other crusades that took place as mass evangelism in the 1950s and 60s. Uh, in the 1970s and 80s, almost in a complete polar opposite reaction to that, we went into an era when it became personal evangelism became the big focus, not the big mass gathering, but people sharing their faith personally with others or what sometimes was called friendship evangelism. Uh, moving on from that in the 1980s and 90s, we moved into the era when courses evolved and that's when Alpha commenced. Uh, Alpha was launched at HTB in London in 1977 uh, and has gone on to become a global phenomenon. And they still continue. In fact, we're doing uh, Alpha continuously here at St Columns, and that's a great thing as well because many people owe their faith to that course and others. And then in the new, no, 2000 and onwards, uh, we've been involved in what is a conversation around what it doesn't mean to be a missional church. What does it mean to mobilise the whole church in mission, not just to have a program or act, an activity but for all of us to discover what it means to participate in God's mission together in God's world. This is about mission is from everywhere to everywhere. In other words, it's happening in all sorts of ways, in all sorts of places through God's people doing their thing in the places where God's placed them, as well as whatever it is it means for us to do mission together as God's people together as a gathered community. Now, I mean, there's much one could say about this topic because it's a really big topic, but that's kind of what we've been reflecting on uh, in the last 10 or 20 years. Uh, many church plants, plants have taken place because there has been a big focus on church planting in the past 20 years uh, in Australia and in other places. It would be true to say that many church plants effectively have just recycled Christians. as they're people who have left one church to go to another church, which is uh, brighter and newer and more exciting. And the real action these days is more often than not in ethnic-specific churches. Uh, the Arab Anglican Church, which I think I've mentioned before in Coburg, recently had a service of baptism which the Archbishop was involved in, and there were 30 people baptised. I mean, that's incredibly exciting, isn't it? That's not happening amongst Anglos, but it's certainly happening amongst people from different, different ethnic backgrounds. Now, if we are operating at the margins in our day and in our context, how can we live well at the margins? And how can we as a church community rediscover the joy of sharing in mission in community? which is part of what uh, Kirsty was reflecting on last week. We're all busy, and many people struggle to make it to church even semi-regularly. Uh, certainly that was my experience at the other place that I ministered to up the road uh, not far from here. Uh, and how can we possibly combine everyday mission with the incredibly demanding positions that many people in this sort of context like here uh, and the church up the road have, which are all consuming leadership roles? How do we find enough leaders when we want to multiply small groups? And how will God's work be funded and resourced? Now, according to the Apostle Peter, we shouldn't be surprised by these challenges. He put it this way in the reading we just had. He says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the Spirit of God and of, of, of glory rests on you. 
And if you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal or even a meddler. However, if you are suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. Now, these are incredibly strong words, uh, and perhaps our situation doesn't seem in any way apt in relation to them. Uh, Pope Francis uh, said recently that uh, in terms of what's going on in the world, that there's an equivalent to genocide happening in terms of what's happening against Christians in particular contexts in particular parts of the world. And compared to that sort of scenario, uh, our troubles and challenges might seem quite mild and middling. But nevertheless, we all have to face the challenges we're in, in the context we're in, and live out our face where God has placed us. Nevertheless, as I've suggested, we are being forced to accept a reduced place in the life of the wider community, and many voices are raised against the faith in particular. As I've said before, one of the most common stories these days is of people giving up the faith, not the other way around. So as Peter exhorts us, don't be surprised if you suffer for the sake of God's church, God's kingdom, and the gospel. Rejoice because you participate, as he puts it, in the sufferings of Christ. And if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Why? Because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. In other words, when we're up against it, when we're much, we're much more likely to be fully aware of God's presence than when we're drifting calmly and happily along, uh, enjoying the fruits uh, of the situation in which we live. And don't be ashamed, he says, but praise God that you are, have the privilege of bearing his name. Now, these are very seemingly strange words, aren't they? Because what he's saying is, he says, rejoice, you're blessed, praise God, when you're insulted uh, for the name of Christ and when you suffer on behalf of the name of Christ. Well, we can only do all this because we have the hope of God in our hearts and we know that there is more to life than this life and we rejoice in the future glory in which we will be freed from that suffering and that struggle. That's part of what helps, don't you think? If you're suffering in this life, you know that this isn't the end. It's not about everything's not around this life, it's actually bound up in a future glory that is to come. Now, somewhat surprisingly, it is as we suffer, we know God's presence and blessing, and somehow we are helped, he says, to rejoice. Now, in all of this, there, I think, are a number of responses we need to think about. The first one is material generosity, money in eternal perspective. It doesn't require a lot of reflection to accept that we are in a materialistic context. We are in an incredibly affluent community, and it's therefore an even bigger challenge for us to think about what it means to be a disciple of Christ. Uh, when our kids were growing up in uh, Burundara, I used to say to them, we live in the Burundara bubble. And I used to facetiously say, I, I, I understand there are people who live in other parts who don't quite live like we live. Uh, in other words, don't get used to it, guys, because this, you may not live in this sort of situation all of your life. Uh, there are slightly surreal aspects to it, as nice and as lovely as it is. Uh, we have a lot of things and we're used to enjoying the world's comforts. And as believers, we claim that we have placed our trust in Jesus and that we are being shaped by our hope in Christ. We need, we need therefore, to heed the challenge of Jesus himself who said that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And in 1 Timothy, Paul says, Command those who are rich to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. And in this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. The chapter 4 finishes with the words, continue to do that which is good. Continue to do good. 
We need to be rich in good deeds. Uh, John Rockefeller was one of the richest people in history, and after his death, someone asked his accountant, how much money did he leave? Uh, And the accountant answered, all of it. Because that's the reality, isn't it? Once we go, we go, and our resources go with us uh, to some other place uh, because we don't take any of us with us. Wealth is good, but it's to be used wisely and for the sake of others. And when people are looking for a good church, what are they look often looking for? Well, they'll be thinking about its theological outlook. They'll be wondering whether it has good preaching and teaching. Uh, they might, uh, they'll certainly often, more often than not, look, be thinking they want good ministries to families and young people. Uh, They might even think about the great music or the amazing facilities. But by contrast, the sort of church Peter is inspired by are the ones that Kirsty reflected on last week in verses 8 to 11. Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do as one who speaks the very words of God. And if anyone serves, they should do so with the strength that God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. See the focus there? Not on being wealthy, it's on love, it's on hospitality, it's on about graciously sharing the gifts that God's given us for the sake of others. It's about service and giving and doing good for the sake of others. A church that will be truly attractive will be one where love abounds and is spontaneously expressed, and a church where outsiders are included and welcomed, a church that's overflowing in generosity as we offer hospitality and use our God-given gifts for the sake of others. Now, some of you were a part of the renewal of St. Columns in the 1990s, uh, and I probably shouldn't share this aside, but I do remember once being at a meeting uh, with a particular person who was involved at St. Columns who said, who had this ethos that you had to empty the church before you filled the church, um, which was a very strange philosophy. Uh, and the consequence of that was the need for a renewal in St. Columns, uh, if I can put it that way. Some of you may have ears to hear. And, and some of you are a part of that. Now, can I suggest that you're back at that place again, albeit in a much stronger position than you were uh, in the 1980s when that renewal started, or 90s, was it started to take place, when you were down to about 20 people, I think, as I recall. Because uh, the church has got to be constantly renewed uh, and we have to gird up our loins and continue to be involved in the renewal of God's church ongoingly. Uh, You have great opportunities, as I've said, uh, great connections and great potential. The antidote to materialism and apathy is generosity, being a blessing to others, giving freely and abundantly. And if you have been blessed abundantly, then rejoice in the privilege and opportunity to use that wealth for the sake of God's kingdom and for the sake of others. And perhaps in our highly materialistic context, with all of the comforts of living in the city of Birundara, it will be the generosity of our lives that will surprise and even shock people. As part of my work with Overseas Council, because I do have another part-time job, uh, there's a particular person whose name's Bob, who's a business person who's now into his 80s, and he has uh, channeled a certain percentage of his business into Christian mission. Uh, it would be true to say that he's funded hundreds and hundreds of Christian workers through this initiative, an incredibly generous guy uh, who's had his footprint all through Asia and Africa as he's supported all sorts of different missions. And it's an amazing experience to sit with him and to hear about what's happened as a result of his wisdom in using his resources and his generosity. So material, material generosity, but as well as that, relational generosity, because 
It's about time in eternal perspective. In chapter 4, verse 8, Peter, Peter says, love covers a multitude of sins. A key aspect of Christian community must be its capacity for forgiveness or what we might be called relational generosity. And any Christian community will have a mix of people, some of whom we love connecting with and other people who we find challenging. That's the nature of Christian community. Uh, And I think I touched on that a couple of weeks ago. It'll be a sign of our health as a community as to how loving we really are, how inclusive we truly seek to be, and how we can actually love those who we find challenging as well as those who we like hanging out with. In our time, poor world, the issue of relational generosity is a major challenge. Relationships take time. People are demanding. And including people in our lives can't be done conveniently, comfortably or easily. The words of the apostles should challenge us because sincere love, deep love, freely using our gifts for the sake of others will take time. Now, in reflecting on all of this, I want to offer one perspective and one challenge. The perspective is this, that all of us have exactly the same amount of time allocated to us each week as every other person. That's true to say, I think, is it not? We all have exactly the same amount of time. Uh, each of us has 24 hours in each day and seven days in each week and 365 days in a non-leap year each year. And in all of that time, we can do those things. We have to make choices about what we do with those times, at that time rather. Now, the reality is that we will find time to do the things that we want to do. Isn't that the case? If it's really important to us, we'll find the time, even if we're incredibly busy people, uh, and we will make choices. So if your team is in the grand final and you're an incredibly important you know, pray God this may happen, but uh, if, you, if your team is in the grand final, uh, you will find time to be there, won't you? Because that may be important to you. If a good friend announces that they are visiting, you'll allocate time willingly, and if you have a major medical appointment, you'll fit it in. We all do this. Uh, it ought to be similar in terms of fitting in the things that are important in our lives, in terms of the commitment to serving God and God's people. The challenge is to trust God because it will be one of the most rewarding things that we do all week. We will do it freely and happily because we want to, and others will be blessed as we are. Uh, I've always been inspired by the impact of a friend of mine, not the impact, but the uh, example of a friend of mine who was a senior, senior, senior partner in one of the biggest law firms in the country. Uh, And in spite of the fact that he was a senior, senior partner and had monumental amounts of work and did work prodigious hours, he still managed to be a church warden at his church. He taught Sunday school and he sat on a couple of dioceses and committees. Now, he did those things because he was a high-capacity person, but because he chose to, uh, and he managed to make time for that, and he managed to do, I think, it very well. Now, along with these two are the issues of leadership and prayer, and David Knox will be talking about those next week when he finishes off on the really best part of 1 Peter, which is Chapter 5. He gets all the easy bits with all the big verses I'm just joking, but that'll be next Sunday when David is preaching. Finally, in all of this, being insulted, suffering in eternal perspective. In returning to the theme, I want to comment comment on a few aspects of Peter's teaching here. As he sees it, we shouldn't be surprised if we experience hostility or negativity for our faith. Amazingly, he says, when we suffer for Christ's sake, then, then he suffers with us, and we somehow mysteriously participate in his sufferings. In other words, Christ's sufferings weren't confined to the cross, they continue in and through the church, and uh, as he suffers and we, as we suffer, he suffers with us. Uh, if we're insulted for the name of Christ, then we're blessed because the spirit of glory and the spirit of God rests on us. As Peter puts it, the Holy Spirit, therefore, is with us. 
Uh, and for a number of years, I was the chair of Access Ministries here in Melbourne, which uh, was involved in Christian religious education in schools when we had that, uh, in state schools as well as chaplaincy in state schools. Uh, and we went through an incredibly contentious period back uh, in the end of the noughts, uh, the 2009, 8, 9, 7, 10, 11, 12, whatever it was around that period, uh, when the issue of chaplaincy was a major matter of contention. Uh, and I remember that I got to a point where I couldn't open the Age newspaper on any day without week without feeling kind of anxious because there'd be another negative article about some sort of thing that someone had dug up somewhere uh, out of a campaign that leaked out of West Hawthorne Primary School and then went into all sorts of other places uh, with a group called Firis. Remember them? Fairness in Religion and Schools. Uh, and it was an incredibly stressful time because uh, one actually was feeling totally up against it in a way that was unfair uh, and one had little opportunity to actually work out how to respond to it because it was all just negative stories. And I do remember after a while I decided that I had a hunch that I should try and speak to the aged journalist who was writing all of these articles. So I sent her an email saying, would it be possible to catch up? And so we did catch up, which I didn't think she'd agree to, and we met at the aged offices and we had a coffee together and almost automatically the story started to change because she had a bit of perspective on what she was writing about. But there was a genuine period of stress and suffering for the sake of the gospel. Well, what Peter, what more, what Peter says here is when you're in that situation, the Holy Spirit rests on you and you have to rely upon God and ask for wisdom from above uh, as you seek to serve God faithfully and well in whatever that context is. And what's more than that, Peter says here that judgment begins with the household of God. It's as if our faith is tested and how we respond, whereby thereby judgment is being expressed. And if we shrink back and deny Christ, then we ourselves will be judged. This isn't going to be eternal judgment, but the judgment of not living faithfully. But at the same time, Peter reminds us that while it's hard to be right for the righteous to be saved, those who are opposed to God's work will have to face up to the final judgment. Now, it's not a popular idea these days. In fact, it's rarely ever preached on. But we do, in fact, believe in ultimate judgment, that in the end that people will have to face their maker, all people, and they'll have to give a defence for what they've done in this life uh, and whether, how they've responded to God and God's love himself. And it's true to say that no one who stands before God at the end of the time won't be, at that time, have a clear sense that they deserve the outcome of that judgment when they stand before God. Now, for us as people of faith, we know that we only stand before him as righteous because of what he's done on our behalf. Nothing that we've done in this life, none of our good deeds will matter. It's only what Christ has done on our behalf that will lead to us being standing, standing before God's judgment and actually being cleared. Uh, and at the same time, those who choose not to act on that option uh, will live with the consequences of the choices that they make. So as Peter puts it, at the end... We should commit ourselves to our creator and to continue to do good. Now, don't you think that's a surprising way to finish, talking about these really big things, you know, standing before the judgment of God, and the outcome, he says, is to do good? Now, I have touched on this before, but this is a recurring theme in the epistles, that part of the challenge of being God's people today is to be involved in doing good. And that's pretty simple, isn't it? Responding to God's call in our lives to seek, to seek to do good in our lives for the sake of others and for the sake of God's kingdom. Not that complicated in the end. God's inviting us to participate in his work and his way by doing the good that he's invited us to be a part of today, as challenging as that as it is. And the promise is that the Holy Spirit is with us as we do those good things.
So let's pray as we finish. Gracious God, we do indeed thank you, thank you for the opportunity we have to live for you in our context, which is challenging for a whole variety of ways. We pray, gracious God, that if we do indeed, uh, we are indeed facing suffering and opposition or resistance to our faith, that you'd give us the courage of our convictions, that you'd help us to be faithful in standing for Christ, that you'd give us wisdom in our interaction with others, and more particularly, that you'd help us to be conscious of your presence through your spirit to enable us to live for you. We pray, Lord, as we seek to work out what it means to be God's people in God's world today and to do mission in that context, that you'd help us to think about what it means for us to do good, as simple as that seems. And we pray that in Christ's name. Amen.